All right, Isaiah 46, 8 through 13. If you don't have a Bible, there's blue Bibles under you. Um, this is our gift to you. If you don't have a Bible, please take that home. Um, and it's on page 352 in those blue Bibles. Starting with verse 8. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, your transgressions. Remember the former th things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness, it is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. This is God's word, you may be seated. Thank you, brother. How are we doing this morning? Great after that. Yeah, my name is Josh. I'm very excited to be a pastor of this church. A lot of things God's doing, and I get to preach uh, most Sundays up here. And we are walking through Isaiah. Just to give you a little context, Isaiah 40 all the way through Isaiah 55 is what we're preaching through. It's one poem in the original Hebrew. How many of you guys know original Hebrew? And Yeah, me neither. So we are walking through the original Hebrew, this poem about this suffering servant. And each week we're trying to tackle uh, one to two to three chapters. Are we doing this again? We got, there we go. Uh, so Isaiah 44, 45, 46, 47, I am just going to camp out in that little section that Jimmy just read for us, Isaiah 46, and here's what we're going to be talking about today, something uh, that all of us deal with. So I met with a guy for lunch last week, and he, he was just kind of describing life, kind of what's going on, heart work, and he just says, I have major trust issues. And I said, yeah, me too. We all do. That's kind of humanity. And then you become a follower of Jesus, and those trust issues don't go away, horizontally or vertically. Because what these folks just committed to is, I'm going to learn to obey Jesus in all of life. But they are not at the finish line, they're at the starting spot. And what is the starting? It's like, how do I trust you fully, Jesus? And it's like this process. My sister's married to this guy, Robbie. I don't know if he watches my sermons. If he does, he might not like this illustration, but... When they first started, like, being around each other, Robbie was all about my sister, Julie. I want you. Like, I think this is a thing. And she's like, no, definitely not. I really want to be your boyfriend. Absolutely not. Under no circumstances. If you were the last person on earth, no. Capital N, capital O, no. No, no, no. Explicit of explicit. Leave me alone. No, no, no. I'm going to call the police. No, no, no. And then, Maybe. And then, oh, and then she reverts back. No way. That no, no, absolutely not. Until 12 years of marriage, four kids, multiple foster kids, he wooed her. He won her. Our walk with Jesus is similar. We start off as a no way, for whatever reason. We got lots of people here, lots of visitors. Like why you don't have your trust in Jesus? There's a plethora of reasons, but it's like a no way. Nope. 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 Maybe. Okay. Nope, 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 until you submit your life to Jesus and you begin this process of trusting him even more. And what we're looking at today is one of the hardest realities of God for any of us to trust. It's his sovereignty, his control over all things. 
So here's what we're walking through. Here's our sort of big idea. Looking at God's sovereignty, we're going to learn how to embrace this offensive, mysterious, and beautiful truth of God that actually carries us if we let it. We are talking about God's sovereignty. That's what we're doing today. We're going to dive in because we're a little short on time because we had some great stories. But here's what we're talking about. God's sovereignty. What is it? Some of you have good answers for it. But what does this passage that Jimmy just read say about God's sovereignty? Let's read again together. Verse 8 through verse 10. This is God speaking on behalf of himself. Remember this. And stand firm, recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Stop right there. What is that? That's God's sovereignty. He's saying, whatever I say, whatever I think, whatever I want to happen, happens. I am in total control over this situation, all situations that have ever happened. I will accomplish all my purpose. That's God's sovereignty. That's a big statement. That's a mouthful. A few different ways people have started tried to articulate this. Westminster Confession is a famous confession that Protestants have used for a long time. Here's what they would say, the language they would use for this particular truth. God from all eternity, according to his own holy and wise counsel, did freely and immutably, unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. You're like, that's a lot mouthful. Yeah, they, theologians like to use big words. What are they saying? God, from before there was anything, he came up with a plan and immutably he ordained, unchangeable, whatever he thinks is going to happen, is going to happen. Whatever he says is going to happen going to happen. He's sovereign. He's in control. Here's how our church, Redemption Church, writes this into our language in regards to how he saves us. We believe, so this is from our doctrinal statement. If you're a member, this is what you've signed up for. We believe that from all eternity, God determined in grace to save a great multitude of guilty sinners from every tribe and language and people and nation, and to this end, foreknew them and chose them. God foreknew, he had knowledge of the future. Why? Because he's in control of all aspects. And then he did the work to actually work out his plan of salvation. He is totally sovereign. Again, this is like top shelf theological stuff right now. We're gonna bring it down. But here's how God would say those statements through the prophet Isaiah to Israel and now to us. Here's what we just read. For I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all of my purposes. What is God saying? He's saying, I'm in control of what, God? All things. I'm not just theoretically in charge. I'm practically and on the ground in charge. All that I think All my will will be done. Isaiah succinctly says, I will accomplish all my purposes in the natural world, in the supernatural world, in the molecular world, in every soul in this room, in every nation that's ever existed, in any ethnic group that's ever existed, all throughout all of time, any point you look at where you take a slice of what's happening in history, God is saying, I am in charge. Like I said, that's like top level. 
Now, as a Christian, you're learning to trust a God who says that about himself. And here's what I know to be true, is it's like my sister having to walk from no way, uh-uh, okay, maybe, I do and I love you. We have to walk this process. And here's what a lot of us face when we first encounter this truth is the offensiveness of it. Slide says, how is this offensive? Very simply, if God is in charge of everything, everyone, every country, every leader, every baby, every atom, that means I am not in charge of any of that, myself included. That like smacks the American spirit right in the mouth because we are in charge of our own destiny. This is offensive on a few levels. And here's what I want to, just a few, I'll call them intersections of faith, opportunities for trust, sort of where this truth hits us in real life. These are sort of the three big buckets that I face personally, that I face pastorally, and that are in this room right now. Here's the first one. Our independence in God's complete sovereignty. Meaning, who's in charge of my life? Well, I am. And then you go to the word, and God says, I'm in charge. My wife, we just went to a kids' event. We're, you know, talking to parents of middle schoolers, and one mom saying, well, my son just changed his name. I named him this at birth, but now his name is this. Why are seventh, eighth graders living in a world where they feel like, you know what? I'm going to name myself even. The most foundational piece of my identity, my name, I'm going to pick. We could say, oh, those stinking youth. I told you, get these young kids out of here. They're the worst. No, or... They're living in a world that's been created and cultivated and passed on to them that says, I'm in charge completely. And just to like put us all on blast a little bit, like we live in maybe the most free space, time, place ever. I just watched this guy try to give some helpful advice for parents on school, you know, choosing school for your kids. He's an Arizona guy, a friend of mine, saying, you know, homeschool or private school or public school or da-da, all the schools, here's what I would think about and pray about. And this first response was a guy saying, I can tell you live in Arizona. And his point was, you come live in Washington where I live and you'll have a different tune. What's his point? We have less freedom than you Arizona cowboys out there who get to do whatever you want to do with everything. Like, think about it. Where you grocery shop, where your kids, how your kids go to school, where you're going to spend your afternoon, what aspect of your life is controlled by someone else? Until you have to register your vehicle and go to the stupid DMV and deal with that, then you're like, I'm out of here. Where's a more free place than Arizona? And then you start to move off to Texas or wherever else is more free than this place. What's my point? God says, I'm in control. We live in a culture that says, you're in control, and you're in control, and I'm in control. And you hit this intersection and the Christian faith says, we bow down to he who is in control. And that's not something you embrace the second you come out of the water. That takes work. That's the first intersection. Here's the second one. And this one hits close to home for a lot of us. It's the intersection of our pain and God's sovereignty. Here's how it goes. If God, if you're, what you're saying is true, that God is in complete control of all things, why did this happen? You say preacher boy, that God's in control and you think he's loving and good. Why did this happen? And I don't have like a solid, I don't have an index answer. I just know for all of us, it's an intersection. If God is in complete control, one of the things we're going to face is why is my life so hard? 
Why is my kid still not following Jesus? Why is my wife going through this? Why is this pain still here? And nobody can give you quick, pat answers. I'm reading through the book of Job in my quiet time, and it's fascinating because I think it's 42 chapters worth of content. The only content that is true and good is when God speaks, and he speaks at the end of chapter 42. So Job is sort of like a manual on how to do Christianity stupidly, which is what, like, when somebody's hurting, here's what you tell them. And it's all these, like, just dumb statements that aren't true. So it's in the Word of God. It's true. God spoke it, but it's like an example of here's how you navigate pain stupidly. Get to chapter 42 and listen to God, and God just simply says this, where were you? when I did all this? He doesn't even answer the question, which means if I was going to stand up here and say, I got an answer for your pain question, I would be foolish because God doesn't even give an answer to Job who seemed to earn somewhat of an answer for what he went through. So that's one. My brother's in this. I was adopted, raised in a different family. My mom had another son. She got a terminal illness. So his whole life, he's watching his mom pray, heal me, heal me, heal me, heal me. And God says, no. And she dies in his teenage years. And he would say, the one thing I prayed for my whole life was my mom to be healed. And God said, no. What is that? That's God's sovereignty and our pain hitting. And you're like, ah, I don't know. Here's the third intersection. Is our unsaved friends in God's sovereignty? What do I mean by that? You have people in here you're praying for. And if God is really in control and he can do whatever he wants and save whoever he wants, why is he not saved? And again... If you open up Job, Job's friends all spout off reasons. And I would just say, I don't know. But God's in control even over that. And you press in and you learn how to trust and you learn how to go from nope, 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 no way, no way, no way to, okay, God, I submit and I trust you. It's offensive to know that God is in control and we are not and it's painful often. So what is our option if we don't want to trust that God that's that in control. We see it in this text here. I want to go back a little bit. Go to chapter 46, which you're in, but look at verses 5 through 7. Here's the option on the table for all of us if we don't like this version of God. Verse 5 says, To whom will you liken me? This is God speaking. In whom will you make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship, and they lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries out to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. You see what's happening? They make a God. They put him on his shoulder. They bring it. They set him down. He says, he looks fine, but he can't save or redeem. He can't do anything to help you. That's our option. If we don't like the God who's in control, we have to form another God in our image. Here's one of the ways I, I see this play out. So we have a lot of single people, engaged people, people get married. I get a calendar reminder every time there's an anniversary of a wedding I did. I got one this morning. It just reminds me of all the new trends in the wedding world. So here's one of the trends I see, and this is not a moral statement. Pastor hat off. The elders aren't making an official stance right here. I'm just making an observation. How do you get a wedding ring these days? For the guy, you're like, I like that one. I went to Prescott, 50 bucks, seemed solid, done. (laughs) How do a lot of young ladies get wedding rings? Here's just a trend I'm noticing. 
They come and they say, look, I'm engaged. Look what he got me. And I say, tell me about that. And it's some version of she went to the store. I want that size, that diamond, that cut. I want it to glow like this. I want this one right here. That's what I want. And then he goes and buys it, does the deal. She says yes, and then she goes, look what he got me. And I go, did he get that for you? Again, nothing wrong. Here's what I think the benefit often of a guy buying a ring is it's kind of like what marriage is. The guy does his homework. He's curious. He knows his wife as best he can. Again, not an elder statement. I think I like, I think she's going to like this. I think she's really into this. And he goes and he buys it. And she likes 67% of what was presented. To which I would say, welcome to marriage. I say that joke, and again, if that's how you did it, it's fine. It's just... Your first issue in marriage is going to be some version of him presenting 67% of what you like and you having to deal with a man that you only like 67% worth. That's just life. And the older people are like, amen and amen. This is religion. I don't like that God. I like this God, this God, this God. So I will present God in my own image. But that's not really God. And listen, I hope you hear my heart. It's offensive for all of us. And it's hard for all of us for a variety of reasons. But God is sovereign over all things. And this is not a classroom lecture. Like what's being done here, this is not Israel sort of having a philosophical debate about how in control God is. This is on the ground, real life. They're in trouble and they need help. What is their hope? Their hope is that God is actually sovereign and going for them, and that's their only hope, that God is gonna move towards them, and he does. And how does he step into the situation? It takes us to our second question, the mysteriousness of this reality. So if you're tracking, here's how sovereignty works. You go from unaware, if no one's ever presented this to you, to some version of that's hard for me to grasp, that's offensive, that's challenging, to I hope you land here to where it's not just offensive, but there's a mysterious reality to that, and we even see it in this text, that this is mysterious. So just a reminder of the players in this situation. We've got Persia, Babylon, Israel, all major players in human history. But let's just look at Persia real quick. Go to chapter 45, verse 1 through 6. This is God describing Persia, a world empire that ours kids and our grandkids study in class. Chapter 45, verse 1 through 6, it says, Thus said the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him, that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in the pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. So this is God speaking to and about Cyrus. Verse 3, and I will give you the treasures of the darkness and the hordes in the secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. 
For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. Still talking to Cyrus. I, 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 a name I know you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord. There is no other besides me. There is no God. I equip you, God speaking to Cyrus, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. That's Persia. That's Cyrus, a mighty empire being described like a father with a child holding his right hand, guiding him to do what the father wants. Flip over to 46. Now what about Babylon, verse 1 and 2? This is still the major player in the day, and they're the ones who have Israel in bondage and in captivity, and this is their religious system that's in charge right now. 46, verse 1 and 2. Bel, that's a god of theirs, bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together, but they cannot save the burden, but they themselves go into captivity. What is being said there? The most powerful God, the God of the sky, the God behind all the kings, are going to stoop and fall down, and they'll have to be carried. That's Babylon. And then what about Israel? Verse 3, here's how God describes the third player in this story, Israel. Listen to me, O house of Jacob all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age I am he. Into gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, I will bear, I will carry, and I will save. What is happening in this story? Babylon's in charge of most of the world. There's this new up-and-comer in the east being raised up. God says, I'm guiding his hand. Why? Because I love Israel, and even to their old, stubborn age, I'm going to be with them, and I'm working all things together for their good. But what's Cyrus doing? He's over here planning, coming up with military strategy. Like, I looked up Wikipedia just because I was like, I don't care that much about Cyrus, but I'm preaching. I'm so here's what Wikipedia says. Real guy, reign of Cyrus lasts about 30 years. His empire took roots with his conquests out east, the Midian Empire, then the Lydian Empire, and eventually the Neo-Babylonian Empire, what we're reading in Isaiah. He also led an expedition into Central Asia, which resulted in major campaigns that we're describing as having brought into subjection every nation without exception. What's said? Cyrus dominated the world through his might. And he's not seen as a bad historical figure. Most people... Praise him for his tolerance, the way he brought in multiple cultures. He let people worship how they wanted. So this is not like an evil figure. This isn't like, you know, he's got any black marks on him. It's just that's his plan to take over the world. And he did according to his plans. But here's what God says about this very same person. Verse 11, let's read it. After saying, I'll accomplish my purpose. Well, what's your purpose in this situation? Verse 11, chapter 46 Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, I will bring it to pass, I have purposed it, and I will do it. Here's the mysterious nature Who destroyed Babylon? Histori historical answer is Cyrus of Persia. Who destroyed Babylon? God would say, I raised him up for this very 
purpose. Who's in charge? God who's in control or Cyrus making real decisions about how he's going to run his empire? Yes and yes. This is the mysterious part of God's control is God's control does not mean this world becomes a big chess match and God is picking us up as tiny little pieces that have no say in the matter and moving us to do what we want. We are real. The word is volitional. We have a will and we're making choices for good and for evil. With both of those, God is using us to fulfill his purposes every time. And you're like, gosh, that blows my mind. I know. This is why it's hard to grasp. It's a mysterious reality. Another, like, to the Jesus point. What about Jesus? Who killed Jesus? You don't have to shout an answer. But the Bible would give a few different answers that seem to contradict Seem to be like, how do you hold those? Like, here's some of the answers. This is Peter preaching to a crowd, and he's pointing his finger. You denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Who killed Jesus? This crowd, Peter says. You guys did it. That next verse is John 19. That's Jesus talking to Pilate. And Pilate's like kind of, I don't know what to do with this. This is a Jewish thing. I don't know. He's like, I kind of want to wash my hands of this. And Jesus says, hey, he who handed me over to you, don't worry. He has a greater sin than you. What's Jesus' point? Even in the death of Jesus where lots of people were involved, different levels of authority and government and religion and ethnic backgrounds, all working together in cahoots to get the Romans to persecute and eventually crucify Jesus, Jesus would say, yeah, there's lots of people to blame, and some people are more to blame than you, meaning there's different levels of punishment for their involvement with the death of Jesus Christ. So who killed Jesus? Quite a few different people. And then ultimately a Roman soldier fulfilling his duties as a Roman citizen. But who killed Jesus? Another section in the same book, they would say this, but this Jesus, how did he die? What, what Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men why did Jesus die because men and women rose up to have him killed why did Jesus die because God had a plan and foreknowledge and control over all things and he worked them together to the moment of the cross where his one and only son was killed how do you reconcile you say, that's mysterious. The Apostle Paul in Romans, when he's kind of just trying to peel back theology and understand it, at one point he says this in Romans 11, how unsearchable are your ways and how unscrutable are your judgments. Paul, who's a genius, gave us a lot of the New Testament, would say, at some point I just had to say, I can't trace all this, I can't understand, this is mysterious. So here's one of my hopes for you. If, you're, if the sovereignty of God is still like, doesn't sit well on your tongue, I pray that you at least move a little towards the mystery of it all. That the, the offense of it gets drowned out by, there's a mystery involved that I don't quite understand. But as a pastor here, as someone wrestling through the same stuff as you guys, here's where I want us to move ultimately. I want us to move to the beauty of this. What is so beautiful about God's sovereignty? What is so beautiful? And I see it just in the people of Israel. What was happening to Israel at this time? They are being persecuted. They are living in a foreign land. Their circumstances are not good, to say the least. Like, just trying to relate, I can't relate. I've never lived in a foreign country. I've visited. 
I've never been a minority in a situation. I've never been oppressed in a situation where I'm in a foreign land. I've never had my religion squashed. I've never had a lot of what Israel is dealing with in this moment. Their circumstances are working against them, and they cry out, God, you're sovereign. Fix this. That's the first. Their circumstances. What they need in their circumstances is to know that there's a God who sees all things, knows all things, controls all things, and he's working together for their good. And the reality, just to remind you, 46, verse 1 and 2, this is the reality of their day-to-day life. These two gods for this Babylonian empire, Bel, verse 1, bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on a weary beast. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but they themselves go into captivity. Here's my question. Where is Bel? Where is Nebo? Where's the worshipers of Bel and Nebo? They no longer exist. Why? You could say, well, that's just how history rolls. Or you could say, there's a God who's in control of all things, and he told Israel, the gods and the powers that are controlling you right now, one day they're going to stoop, and they're going to cower, and they're going to cease to exist. I am working together for your good. What we need to know in this room, there's lots of circumstances where we're like, God, are you sovereign? Are you working in this? And the answer is yes. Corinthians would say it this way. Here's what God says about what we're going through in this moment as followers of Jesus. Do not lose heart, Paul says. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction in your life, in your parents' life, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Why is God's sovereignty beautiful? Because he is working together all things. And right now, whatever you're dealing with, the pain, the unknown, the uncertainty, it's a light momentary affliction that the sovereign God is working together to produce an eternal weight of glory. That is beautiful. But more than that, the good news is this. Israel did not deserve God to step in on their behalf. They were in Babylon because they were sinners and idolaters, and God is punishing them. They are still sinners while they're in captivity for the sins of their past. They are not learning their lesson. Even God describes them. Verse 8, here's how Israel is described in this passage. You transgressors. Verse 12, you stubborn of heart. Verse 12, you who are far from righteousness. That's the people of God. That's us in this room. Here's where God's sovereignty gets so beautiful to me. It has nothing to do with me earning any of it. Because I'm stubborn of heart. You're stubborn of heart. We're far from righteousness in a lot of ways. We are sinners. We are transgressors. We are rebellious. We are adulterers. Fill in the blank with whatever. We do not deserve God's sovereign good hand to work on our behalf. And God does not deal with us according to our sin. Amen? Even in this verse, verse 13, Isaiah 46, verse 13, here's the culmination of what he's going to do for this stubborn, rebellious, transgressing, sinful bunch who are far from righteousness. Verse 13, I'm going to bring near my righteousness. It's talking about Jesus. It's not far off. My salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion. Why? For Israel, my glory. Why is God going to work on the behalf of Israel? Simply because he is good and his sovereignty works for the good for those who love them. Apostle Paul would give us this statement 
over our time this morning as you're wrestling through God's sovereignty. This is maybe the first time you heard it. Like, this is crazy. This church is crazy. Everything about this is crazy. Offended. Fine. Or you at least think of God as being sovereign and there's a mysterious worship about it in your heart. Here's my hope for all of us as Christians is that we would move closer and closer to seeing his sovereignty as beautiful and undeserved, that he's working for us despite us. Romans 8 says this. I want to say it over you and then pray for us. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Amen? Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your word that reminds us of that which we would never believe on our own and that which we like to forget and to move on from. We need a big, sovereign God. What we think we need are gods that we can place on our shoulders and use as we seem fit. But we want to let you be God. And God, that means a lot of different things for each of us in this room. We're all on different parts of this journey. So I pray that just even this little bit of time we have together, that there would be a little more trust, a little more embracing of the sovereignty of God by your people whom you love and you have called according to your purpose. So God, thank you for this time. Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.